Welcome to Scream Quest, a limited run horror spinoff of our regular podcast, Scream Quest. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Waterman, joined as always by May Finch. Hey guys. Of course, we also have Mr. Will Rotondi. Hey, how's it going? And very special guest, Mikey from Slasher Radio. Welcome to the show, Mikey. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I appreciate this. Let's, uh, let's talk some horror. Yeah, I'm very, very excited. Thank you for, for coming on and uh, guesting with us. We're, we're honored to have you. Pleasure's mine. On uh, today's episode, we will be talking uh, two slasher films. It's a slasher sleepover episode, Halloween and Scream, which uh, as I watch both this uh, weekend, um, just realized it's like one of the most perfect pairings we could have picked, honestly. So very excited about that. Before we dive into uh, to Halloween, uh, Mikey, I wanted to get a little bit of your background with the genre. So uh, walk me through uh, what got you into horror and, and what is it about horror that you love so much? Oh, man. Um, I, I think it's got to start with family, right? Growing up, because my grandmother was a big part. Uh, my mother as well. But like we would just be sitting down for dinner and my grandmother would have Nightmare on Elm Street on in the kitchen like you know casually I'm, just, I'm trying to eat my pasta uh so you know it was that uh i always kind of leaned towards uh i i used i snuck out of my room once when i was supposed to be sleeping and i i was very young and uh we had like an l-shaped sectional and i would kind of sneak on the floor where my mother couldn't see me on that little edge and she was watching a leprechaun one night and you know i'm just happy to be out of my room but i just got caught up in this movie and um the line where uh, the, the kid goes F you lucky charms I busted out laughing blew my cover was grounded for at least a week but it, I just wanted more it led from Tales from the Crypt and you know all that stuff and I think the best part of the genre uh, we talked about a little bit before we recorded was the conversation which you know kind of leads into the community and it, it's just there's there's real it's a genre that shouldn't have and I think for the most part doesn't have any gatekeeping and everyone's welcome and we just love this stuff and it's the most passionate genre out there and i love it awesome man yeah i'm familiar with the uh the crawl around uh yeah. back of the couch maneuver <laughs> i did that once or twice myself uh as, as, a, as a young fella so that's awesome and i would agree i think uh the horror family probably is one of the most uh welcoming communities contrast that with like the superhero and like nerd community right now which i think is like growing worse and worse by the day Yes. Um, pe people are just happy to to have other people to talk about uh, horror with typically anytime I've struck up a conversation. So, uh, well, let's let's go ahead and dive into our first film, shall we? Which is 1978's Halloween, directed by John Carpenter. Not the first horror uh, slasher film, I should say. Not the first slasher film, but certainly I think you could argue like one of the most important, especially for modern slashers. Uh, so since the uh, episode is all about uh, the slasher uh, genre, we'll be getting into um, some some of the tropes and things like that as we talk about both Halloween and Scream. But before we do that, as always, I want to uh, just get some general impressions. If you've seen the the movie before, you can talk about your history with it, uh, why you like it or don't like it. And if it's your first time uh, having watched it, I'd be really curious to know what you think. 
Uh, as the guest of honor, Mikey, I'm going to start with you. So um, just some general impressions and, and how do you feel about Halloween? The, the poster child for horror, I think. Uh, I think it, it's when you talk about tears and, and horror has a lot of them, <laughs> horror movies, uh, it ranges so much. And I feel like there there's movies that I enjoy more than Halloween. But when you really if you open up a textbook and you look up how to create a slasher movie, Halloween was it. And, you know, we you had mentioned, uh, Chris, that there there was, you know, plenty before Psycho and we can go down the list, Texas Chainsaw and all that. But there's just something about Halloween that just feels right. It feels perfect. Michael Myers, you know, it, it's it's the it's a perfect horror movie, in my opinion. Agree. But uh, I'll, I'll save my opinion here. Uh, for just a few minutes uh, I'm gonna get to go up um, vertically from bottom to uh, to the top so will uh, next um, have you seen this before and um, walk me through uh, how you feel about Halloween nice well this is the first time I've ever seen it uh, and oh I'm not really I haven't really been into a lot of the classic horror over the years it's sort of one of those things where it's kind of been on my radar but I've never gotten around to watching it until recently so yeah for a first time go around and I mean, I I knew some details sort of from bits and pieces from what had come or been promoted or marketed over the years when other films had come out, but I didn't really know that much about it. And I've probably seen more references to it in other things, whether we're talking Scream or we're talking just in general when people do parodies of horror films and classic horror. And so, yeah, this was the first go around for me. I liked it. Um, I could definitely see where sort of like a lot of the tropes that we take for granted now in classic horror films come from. And I was I'm actually kind of surprised by just how much, I, I guess for the time, how little blood you see. And I think Chris, you'd actually mentioned that as well, sort of off the pod, which was that, you know, this was when they were first starting to get into the slasher genre, like the golden age of slasher genre, or slasher films. And so to... To have it be more atmospheric and sort of that slow build up to, you know, um, the the payoff of whoever's going to bite, you know, bite it next. I thought that was it was interesting to see that and to have it be a lot more subdued and subtle than what I was used to with more of the recent horror films that have come out. I always tell the story about how I expected this to be way bloodier than it actually was the first time I saw it because mm. I was always told, you know, by like adults, like, oh, it's, you know, it's a no good, like gory, like, you know, I can't, like I, I'm, I had, you know, some relatives that like really didn't vibe with horror at all and kind of always held up movies like this at Friday the 13th as just being gory, like nonsense. And um, like, there's not a lot of blood shown whatsoever in this movie. Like, I, I mean, com comparatively, especially like you go to like some of the later films in this franchise and then Friday the 13th. So um, I think that's an astute observation. And I'm glad you kind of picked up on that, that it uh, it's more suspense, I think, than than anything else or the implication of, you know, um, the violence. Very similar to Will, actually. So I don't have a ton to add. Um, I really like what you said about subtlety, Will, because I... Also, just uh, absorbing so much of the pop culture references to Halloween, I expected it to be kind of gory and overdone. But if anything, it had this uncanny realism to a lot of the setting and pacing that made it scary, even though I kind of knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, 
I also appreciated that the characters that do feel very archetypal still have dimension to them. Um, like Lori, she, I, I tweeted about this and I want to hear your take, Chris, on Lori as well, but um, she feels very much like the archetypal, like virgin final girl, but she also seems very queer coded and has some other things going on with her character that I like. And yeah, I liked a lot more than I thought I would. And I have a whole new franchise to watch the rest of now. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I would say proceed with with caution and muted expectations because it never quite <laughs> gets to this level again. It's not to say that like there's not really, really fun films um, in this franchise because there are. Um, there's an excellent companion podcast called Halloween, the Definitive uh, Companion, which was made by our friends at RKG um, that goes like bit by bit. Um, but it's a very convoluted timeline at this point. Um, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but the I, I would recommend if you like if just because it's I guess probably like the at its most culturally relevant right now. Um, the sequel, the Halloween 2018, the David Gordon Green film, even if that's where you stop in those, uh, it, in my opinion, is as close as they got to doing like a, a a proper like perfect sequel. I have my problems like nitpicky stuff with it, but it is an excellent movie. The opening and closing 30 minutes are outstanding. Just a word of warning that the gore factor goes up significantly. Um, so the subtlety is, is, is gone. It's not to say it's a bad movie and that there's not really great suspensable parts. There are, but it is very much like, you know, working off of 40 years of evolution of the slasher genre and, and, and trying to grapple with a modern audience. But um, I'd be curious if you do go down the, the road and watch any of the other ones. Um, they go places. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> I think there's what three fractured timelines right now. So you could do like uh, the original canon was like Halloween, Halloween two, Halloween four, five, and six, and then they retcon that, and then it was just Halloween, Halloween two, and then Halloween H two O and Halloween Resurrection, and now they've retcon that, and it's now Halloween, Halloween twenty eighteen. Halloween kills Halloween ends. So, um, hey man, I'm I'm a Zelda fan. I'm all for the fractured timeline. <laughs> Fair don't enough. Forget about, don't forget about Rob Zombie now. He threw oh, his hat yes. in the ring. Yes. Oh crap. Yeah, there nice. are the Rob Zombie films, which, uh, I, personally, and like I know a lot of people love them. I think they have their their merits here and there, but for the most part, I find them to be largely joyless um films <laughs> i i did not vibe with the the direction um but if his goal is to make you feel uncomfortable he passes with flying colors because those those are movies are uh are a tough watch and very intense but uh we're not my cup of tea do you like them mikey uh i like them for if they had a different title it they'd be <laughs> i i honestly believe he could have had his own franchise but uh kind of everything we've talked about the subtlety of Michael Myers and Halloween that uh, Will and May were talking about it. It that's what Halloween is. And Rob Zombie went a very different route. But they, you know, I, I have a family member who likes them better than the original. They're yeah. out there. Yeah. Oh, there are definitely people out there that <laughs> really there. like those uh, the movies for sure. Uh, for me, it was like when you try to explain the monster, like he becomes infinitely less scary. Like I think, like, mm -hmm. I, um, and we'll get into it as we talk about this. But I, I think what make my, what makes michael myers like scary for me is like the just you don't know why um and that's 
I guess I can kind of just uh, wrap my impressions and in, in along with this, like my history with this movie was like a lot of people of my generation, which is like, you heard about it, you went to the video store, you rented it and you watched it with like a group of friends, um, you know, in a, in a house, like at a sleepover. And, uh, you know, just everybody went ape shit, of course, because the music was, you know, scary. And, and it was our, kind of our introduction and gateway along with Friday the 13th into like this, this genre. And I, in particular, I always found Michael Myers to be the most scary because it's like, what would make this like six-year-old child do this thing? And, and then um, something about just watching him across the window, like just standing there always and still continues to give me the creeps like to this day. But uh, this is an annual watch for me. It's one of my favorite horror films. Um, certainly, like if I was going to make a top five, like this would be right in there along with, uh, you know, Alien and The Shining for sure. But um, so speaking of uh, Michael Myers, I did want to talk about the character for for a moment and kind of the direction because i want to compare and contrast this with uh with scream right um very different approaches to your your mass killer uh, in this one you know who the mass killer is from from the get-go um you don't really know his motives but um what did you think of this approach to um i don't know like a killer in a, a slasher movie to have it feature so heavily around him and his history and sort of like what he's up to i mean you could argue that the movie is as much about him as it is anybody else um so mikey i'll go to you again first uh that that is super interesting you know i seen something today on twitter uh with someone actually defending halloween ends and uh they, they said something about you guys are are michael meyer fans not halloween fans and i sat there for a second and i said huh that not to get off into Halloween ends, but you know, that it, it kind of goes throughout the entire franchise. I think, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, like Michael Myers has always other than three been Halloween and uh, he's tied so much into there, but the story, what I like about one of the things I like so much about Halloween is yeah, it's, a, it's about Michael Myers. It's, it's also about Lori for most of the films, you know, it's just as much her story as his. And you don't see that too much in uh, in horror films. And if we're taking just the original, obviously it's Laurie and Michael, but the it, the franchise has stood so much within that. And you get like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, and they try and do the same thing, but they stray so quickly. They never last. But I mean, th that's the thing. It, it's a story of Michael Myers, but it's the story of Laurie Strode. And Obviously, I think Michael Myers' side of it is a lot more interesting. You get into psychology of, of what he is and why he is and what he does. And th that's just part of the fun of it is analyzed, like kind of like you said, Will, uh, Chris, the, you don't want to explain it. The fun is kind of guessing along with what why he's doing what he's doing. So, yeah, that that's that's part. That's the best part of it for me is Michael Myers. Why do you think uh, Michael Myers and Laurie Strode work in a way that say like Tommy Jarvis and Jason Voorhees maybe be like, you know, I, I, you could argue to a certain extent, like they for a couple of films, they did an all right, like I think four and six for Friday the 13th um, were largely successful in telling that story with some continuity. <laughs> but as yeah. you pointed out, they they jumped ship very quickly. What is it about Laurie and Michael that you think um, has continued to just endure and and get people coming back to the movies they grew together and i think that's the best because you look at part four of friday the 13th which i can't stand 
but you know, you look at it as far as continuity and story. Uh, it, you see Tommy Jarvis, and he's a kid. Corey Feldman, you got all that going on. But then, boom! In five, you jump, and he's like a grown man. It's like, well, okay, and you kind of just ignore it because the it's about Jason. You want to see Jason kill people. And that's the fun of Friday the 13th movies. But in Halloween, you see stages of Lori and Michael kind of growing together. And that story evolves as to, you know, you jump around, you can't get invested in the story. You can get invested in Jason Voorhees killing people. You know, you oh, that's always fun, but you don't care about the story. So if they stray from nobody complained in part six when there was no, you know, the, uh, 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 part seven, rather, there, there was no Tommy Jarvis and everyone just kind of went along and no one said anything. But whenever Laurie's not in the movie, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. What, what are you guys doing here? So I think that's it. Growth and uh, uh, together as both characters, I, I think, is the best way to answer that. Yeah, I love that analysis. Again, especially going back to 2018, seeing where they, you know, where they both end up. And again, in the way that this feels like a movie that's about both of them, I think 2018 does a good job with that, too. Like, we're very much you get where they're both at 40 years later and, and get little snippets of what their life has been like in the subsequent years. I think that's very astute. That's awesome. Um, Will, wh what did you make of Michael Myers? Since like, this is your like first time seeing the movie, like start to finish. Like, what did you think of that character and um, how they, uh, you know, handled uh, a mask, you know, killer in this movie. And again, we'll, we'll contrast it with scream a little bit later. I like, sort of as the buildup that you never really see his face until the very end. I mean, you see him as a kid, but you don't see what he's sort of become when he's aged and I guess continue to transform more into what he is as he's been anticipating that moment as he is sort of the personification of fate or this relentless force that's never going to be able to stop and is very much like in control or at least seems like he's in control up until the very end. And that for me i thought was very much you know having something that you don't really you sort of have an idea about who it's supposed to be but you really don't know what's underneath that's you know staring at you the whole way like you have the exposition from the doctor who tells you about the history behind you know what happened to his sister and why you know what he felt like he could see in michael but to have it be something that you are still watching as this looming shadow every time you know one of the characters turns around and sees him either hanging out outside their window or you know <laughs> that weird silhouette that's outside the house in the middle of the night that um i don't know there's something that i i felt very much like it, that it was very much terrifying in that respect because anytime you see something staring you down and you don't really know what you think you know what it is but you don't really know i think that that build up is very effective as uh as a tool for horror um and especially in this film too just the lead up to everything that happens afterwards but i guess just the idea of something that's never really that relentless evil that's never going to stop that keeps coming back, um, I thought was was very well done, even though you sort of know essentially who the character is supposed to be, or you think you do. You know, there's always that question of, is it a supernatural force? Is it, you know, is he just somehow impervious to, <laughs> to getting killed himself or, or what the deal is? But it sort of doesn't really matter at the end, I feel like, at least in this film, maybe in subsequent films, and like you mentioned with different timelines. But for that, I felt self-contained in this film, it didn't, that didn't really matter. 
yeah the ambiguity is a, a lot of fun i think and uh he's billed as the shape you know in the credits and that's what a lot of people refer to that sort of iteration of michael and the white mask is the shape you know it's not michael mm -hmm. myers it's the, it's the, the shape um which uh, is an interesting sort of label that kind of puts him into the category of being like a force of nature almost versus a man which yeah loomis would agree with uh you know from judging by his monologues anyway um, uh yeah i mean i don't i don't have much to add there but um i do think it's interesting to contrast him with uh bates from psycho uh because with bates like the terror of him is that he seems like this very meek young man and was known as this rather meek young man uh, until just one day he snapped and he has this kind of alter ego. And with Michael, it's very different. Uh, he seems to have always been like this. And I think the fact that he also never speaks is particularly uncanny because um, all you know about him is just from his actions you get zero internal thoughts or ideas from michael and that i think also sells the um, interpretation of michael as kind of a force of nature something inhuman something that we can't fully understand or contend with in the way you would a normal man the question that i always have for any of the offshoots is like is michael going to talk in this one you know and depending on which timeline you go on like i won't spoil um if it happens or not but it's it is always a question there how much uh, of his humanity is there and um yeah I, I i do i the lack of motivations i think really makes the the character work and um you know in particular i think um the thing that always kind of freaked me out was like how young like that reveal at the beginning is just one of the all-time greats if you don't really like the first time i saw that i assumed like okay so this is going to be like an adult that is doing these things because it's that great tracking point of view shot and then uh, people must have lost their minds you know the camera kind of pulls back and it's almost like um uh almost like a stage production like everyone kind of just freezes you know and he's standing there with a knife i just i love that re reveal that it's a six-year-old child that's done this horrific thing and um that's that's kind of the image that you're left with until you know uh he breaks out of the uh the institution um which is uh quite haunting i was just gonna say also with his dynamic with Lori, i i will say as a woman who has been uh followed at night by someone and i wasn't sure of their intentions uh the fact that you aren't really sure his motivations i'd say definitely adds to the creep factor um and i think makes those moments with Lori even scarier yeah absolutely like wh why does he fixate you know is it just pure chance that uh, she walks up and drops the key off and is that is that the reason is there something else yeah that's um her her terror i think is very understandable and it's a little frustrating as an audience member that none of her friends are nearly as alarmed you know as she is and granted they're not seeing as much as she is but um true crime yeah, wasn't popular yet so very true. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I the only thing i have to add really is i love his sense of like his playfulness i think is an interesting character 
I won't say go so far as say he has a sense of humor, but he does have a sense of sort of play and showmanship that is um, really interesting. Like putting the ghost, you know, sheet on and um, his little tableaus and things like that. There's, there's almost like a childlike quality um, to, to kind of playing a game, you know, uh, that is, uh, again like ca- kind of funny and also re- makes it all the more scary i think that he's put so much thought into um scaring the shit out of his victims uh you know before uh murdering them so <laughs> well very cool i promise we are going to talk about uh laurie strode because you can't talk about halloween without talking about laurie strode but before we get there I wanted to go around the room quickly and see if anybody has a favorite uh, trope or thing that you've, that you've seen imitated elsewhere that you noticed in this movie. So particularly with the the slasher genre, but if you want to go outside of that to other horror movies, um, feel free. So Mikey, uh, back to you, buddy. Uh, tropes, always fun. Uh, I feel like they did, and I, I guess this counts as a trope. I'm not sure. Uh, daylight horror. It's not yeah. something, especially at that point. We see it now, and you know, to, to what you guys are saying, it could be could be from Halloween that we see it so often now. Because uh, we've seen it attempted a couple of times. Uh, there was some parts of Psycho that were, you know, daylight. Uh, none of the real dark, tense moments, but still, uh, it was there. And it, I, I don't think it's ever been done as well as in Halloween, because it's it's like you don't even notice it. Uh, God, God forbid I bring up this damn movie, but Jeepers Creepers 3 is the most modern example I could think of it. And man, all I could think about the whole movie was it's all daylight. Why are you doing it in daylight? Because I guess they needed more to make the movie good. Halloween didn't need that. They had everything. They had the story, the acting, the, the tense moments. So you don't even notice it. And I guess that that goes to show that if you do everything around it well, it kind of you know you can you can get away with a lot uh that was stuck out to me a lot and just as far as generally tropes that these are the first time we've seen a lot of these they gave birth they made them tropes you know so that's kind of important too when you think about it they were just kind of they weren't going off of just some things obviously they took from other films but there's a good portion of stuff where this is the first time we've seen it and they gave birth to these things as tropes and other movies that you know we see after it were imitating and they were setting that bar so uh just another reason that this kind of is so far apart from so many other movies that uh they were trend setting with some of these tropes uh will did you have a a particular thing that you noticed that you'd seen elsewhere like you know i feel like this is one of those movies that it seems cliche if you're coming at it sometimes from like a modern audience like sometimes i show this to people and like they're like this whole thing is cliche and i'm like that's because everybody aped it like (laughs) like, they're cliche this is not cliche this is what what started this off but anything that you noticed that you liked that you'd seen done you know elsewhere or maybe like you know tip of the hat elsewhere absolutely uh a couple of things but i'll just keep it to one which is always check the backseat of your car dude like anytime you go to it just (laughs) always look in the backseat i did that the other day (laughs) seriously weird feeling check it always always that's all i've got but that literally like that and all like be aware that if you went to grab keys and suddenly what you wanted to unlock is already unlocked and it wasn't like five minutes before that maybe you should check but that's one of my favorite sequences (laughs) like in general i love that that whole like moment it's great 
we I think I think we saw a spoof of this in Scream, which we'll get to. But uh, when Annie is like trying to escape from the laundry room and like gets caught in the window <laughs> trying to get out, it's like uh, make sure your escape path is reasonable. <laughs> I guess it's the takeaway there. <laughs> uh, I also I don't I I'm blanking on what I've seen this in, but. I felt so bad laughing in this moment because it's the most terrifying moment for Lori. But when she goes and crosses the street to go and look for her friends and she finds them all dead, just the way the cupboards just fall open as she's screaming, like <laughs> one by one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Marianne and I always laugh about that. We're like, all right, um, Michael's got the remote control like in his hand, like <laughs> <laughs> opening up uh, the smart cabinets. Yeah. Um it, it it works, but it is funny, like and just kind of like odd where it's like that would never happen, but it works, I guess. Uh for me, like it's a such a simple thing. And I know, like, listen, um, Jaws and Psycho both had great scores, but I think like the type of score, which is a lot of really like high like notes and some of that synthesizer stuff to me, like is something that I think is married to like the the slasher genre. Um, you think about like going back to Friday the 13th, like those movies without, I think it's, is it Harry or Henry Manfredi? Man, uh, I'm going to Harry Manfredini. Yes. Harry, yes. Thank you. Um, like the, to me, like, like that score is a large part of what makes those movies work. And I think like you kind of see the start of that with Carpenter's music here. And I read um, that, I guess nobody wanted to distribute the movie until there was a soundtrack. So people saw cuts of this and they were like, eh, it's just not that scary. And then he, you know, composed the music, put it in. And then like the, the first time he showed it after that, they were like, oh, this is going to be great. That, I think that would be my choice is just sort of like the music. I mean, you could talk about like the point of view shots and some of the other things that you see like over and over again. But um, I got I to gotta go with the music. That's a great point. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's great. Yeah, right. Like you see it in a lot of those movies, like especially in like the golden age, like in the 80s, like have um, all strove to kind of have a similar sound, a lot of shrieks and high pitched stuff, you know, strings were certainly a big thing, but also you got like that's like punctuated with synth sounds. And I think that was always somewhat of a either a nod or a rip off (laughs) to John Carpenter's uh, great music in this one. Well, now is the time to talk about the final girl. Lori Strode and I'm very excited because May I did see your tweet and uh, I thought oh how interesting um, you know a completely different take so um, I wanted to go around the room and and uh, get your interpretation right there's a lot of different ways to to read Lori Strode as the final girl so uh, one at a time what do you think it is about the character that allows her to conquer Michael is it her purity um, is it something else? So, uh, Mikey, start with you, buddy. Uh, the, I want to go back to kind of what I said earlier, and it, it's so hard to talk about these characters without, you know, mentioning other movies in the franchise, right? Uh, Lori has grown so much, and I never think it's fair to talk about her only in the original, because in the original, she's kind of, you know, luck is a good part of a lot of the reasons that she made <laughs> made it out of the, the this uh, this situation. Uh, I mean, she was stealthy. You know, she was, uh, quote, ballsy at a couple points where she needed to be and did what she had to do. And, you know, you got to give her credit for that. 
but uh, you know some of it was luck and she wasn't really i mean you could fast forward to h2o and there's such a powerful scene where she slams the gate behind her shut uh locking her and michael into this um uh, campus or whatever and it's almost like everyone's leaving but she's standing there to fight this battle once and for all and then you got 18 and kills where she's you know obviously uh lori lori the way we know her today but in this in the original um she she was she was a, a, a typical run-of-the-mill final girl, but there was just that that sparkle at her. And it was just something that we could latch on to because they, they put her in such real situations, hiding in the closet and using that coat hanger and that scene where he's breaking through the door. Like it's so tense. There's no blood, there's no guts, it's just real. Like that, you could put yourself in that situation and see that really happening to you. And I think the reality of her situations, which goes to writing and and directing and just a whole team effort of making this character relatable. And I think that's the best aspect of Laurie Strode, especially in the original film. Yeah, I guess it is. Uh, it's interesting to think about, like a lot of people have talked about her being like supposedly pure in that context. And so I guess thinking about how she is the only one that seems to take care of the kids in the film like everybody else is trying to like shrug that duty off and I just want to go party or have sex you know and she's the one person who's like being responsible in that group and then thinking about how you know at the beginning of the film where, where Michael offs his sister because she just went upstairs to have sex with some random dude that I guess I kind of I gravitate toward that interpretation a little bit where it's like she is like the one person who seems to like want to take care of other people and think about them and so in some ways she's more and she's also more self-aware about the about you know his sort of impending doom like that he's stalking them and or that something is going on and she's so you know she's already sort of got that alert system on and kind of scoping things out and trying to reassure other people like reassure the kids like there's no you know there's no boogeyman it's fine even though she herself kind of felt like there was a boogeyman that was watching them, watching her and her friends. So, yeah, I think ultimately, I mean, I to a little bit to made of what you were saying too. Like, I kind of got the same vibe that she just wasn't really, you know, interested in boys either. Like, maybe that that was sort of that for that time period. That was to try and imply, you know, some sort of sexual preference, or if it was just like I'm just not interested in that kind of a thing right now, and I got other stuff to worry about. And, but I mean, she's not she's not overly sexualized in any way like a lot of other characters in horror film a lot of other uh, female characters in horror films tend to be and so I think that there's a lot of credibility to that too in reading it that way so I don't know there's a few different I guess it's always sort of nice to talk about that because it is in some ways ambiguous but I at least from just watching this one film and I'm I, I imagine that my opinion would change watching the series afterwards, but that's, I think that's sort of where I'm at right now. Awesome. Yeah. I think it's open to interpretation. I think that's why it's such a, it's a great film to discuss because you get some throwaway lines here and there, but I think a lot of it, you have to kind of infer and put through your own lens and kind of make your, make your mind up for your, yourself. Um, so may, can you expound? Well, first of all, um, I kind of set the stage, uh, you know, uh, on what your tweet was and then expound if you don't mind. So give, give me your read on Lori. Yeah. So like surface level, she does fit the trope of being the only like morally pure character, doesn't drink or have sex, isn't sexualized. 
like Will's talking about, and that kind of means that she's most likely to make it to the end of the film compared to the other teens. Um, but I also, I, I read personally a lot of queer coding from her. Um, part of that is like Will pointed out, just the fact she's not really interested in boys. And when her friend like presses her to confess who she would be interested in, she freaks out when that friend offers to actually like connect her with that person and that person seems interested. Um, and the other part of the queer coding that is more subtle to me is just, um, she's very hypervigilant compared to the other teens, right? And um, when you are part of a marginalized group, especially back in the 70s, you generate that kind of hypervigilance because you're always afraid of being outed or being picked on or like that kind of thing. And so I read her characters very queer coded. Again, she could just be, you know, not interested in boys at this time in her life. But um, that was kind of my read on her. And I don't have the context of the other films yet. But when I do, I will revisit that idea. <laughs> awesome. No, I think that's a like, that's a take I'd never considered. So I found it to be really fascinating. And it had me kind of racking my brain and going back through like moments and like kind of trying to recontextualize them and you know um do like a, a like a queer theory like uh reading of the film and now I'm like man now, now I get like the next time I watch it I've got to go with that lens and like really um try to to do like a, a proper uh reading um you know through that kind of like film theory lens and I think that would be really cool so um thank you for sharing I think that's one of the more interesting insights I've heard in a long time on a character who's been analyzed to death. So well done. <laughs> Thanks. I've never heard that before. And I wish they would have did it. Honestly, that's <laughs> seriously, that sounds great. Like I'd never, ever heard that take before. They should have did it. Would have made, would have been great, especially going into these, these latest three. That'd have been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Agree. I'd have been up for that. Um, so yeah, um, may you kind of touched on it, like where, which is kind of where I land is like, um, like, so like we see her smoking some weed, like, so she's not entirely like adverse to a little bit of like fun, but it, she's a, a character that I've always seen as like really world, like weary, like for how old she is. Right. She seems like an old soul in a lot of ways. And she has, uh, as you pointed out that awareness, um, not a panic, like she doesn't ever go into a blind panic, but she has her guard up for a good portion of the movie. Even like when her and Annie are having the conversation about old man, whatever his name was, like, she's like, Hey, he can still look, you know, even if he can't do anything else, like she has, um, you know, I, I don't know, like an awareness and, and her defense is up kind of at all times. And I think, that is ultimately like what helps her. But Mikey, I do love that you say that there's a bit of luck involved because well, I don't think she ever underestimates Michael or like this person that's like stalking her. She doesn't know it's Michael. Like I, I think that she does quickly realize that like she might be a little bit outmatched, right? Like I think she does her best and um, is fortunate in a lot of different ways. Um, maybe Michael under underestimates her, right? You think about how easy he, I mean, he's, you know, cut through the rest of her friends, like a hot knife through butter, you know, not to use a, a gross metaphor, but it's kind of true, right? Like nobody really offers much resistance. 
And perhaps the first time he's encountered somebody that's halfway capable is why she's able to uh, prevail. Like, who knows? But, um, but yeah, I've always seen her as kind of an old soul. And I think there's a, a bit of a darkness that I've always detected on the inside of, of Lori, you know, um, like maybe she's not the happiest uh, character. Um, just to offer up a little bit of what John Carpenter himself has said, obviously, he doesn't say like, hey, this is canon. Like, it's just how he directed it he always kind of rejected the notion of like the, the the pure character and said that she's sexually frustrated and she's channeling that into that final confrontation um that you know hey like she uh is interested she wants to be with boys but like she doesn't know how to go about it because of her social awkwardness and anxiety and that's what allows her to prevail i think again any of those valid interpretations and it is kind of interesting to have a director comment on uh you know um where he was coming from it's rare sometimes to get that much insight some directors are kind of notoriously tight-lipped about stuff like that well cool let's let's draw us a card um now i apologize mikey you can't see the game board but if you watch the show on youtube once it posts you'll be able to see this lovely art that uh, mr rotondi made for our special edition of screen quest uh we made a, a series of cards uh, it's going to be a one and done so whatever topic you get today will not be repeated so let's see what fate has in store for you my friend oh boy ah okay it is fx that effect so what i want you to do we'll go around the room and mikey i'll start with with you uh and if you need time this is an edited podcast we can always cut around um odd, awkward pauses or anything like that but I want you to tell me what is your favorite horror movie effect? Like, so specifically in a movie, do you have a favorite special effect or kill or something like that um, in, a, in a particular horror film? So an example might be like the transformation in American Werewolf in London, something like that. But again, it could be a creative kill or something in a, a, a film, whatever you want to pick. Oh, man, that is hard. You know what? You know what? I will. I, this is going to be easier than I thought. And I'm just going to stick with something that I've always loved so much. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors, uh, uh, the Veins kill where he, mm. you know, you got Freddie being the puppeteer and uh, I forget the character's name. Just, just it, it looked great. Did it look perfect? No. Did it translate uh, well to today? Like, you know, when you put on a movie and the effects are way outdated, uh, it, it doesn't carry over to modern effects in the best way not not the worst either and man it was so creepy it was just thinking about it i get chills a little bit because just the thought of that is incredible and they play they paid off the scene so well all around effects wise obviously but then you have the acting and and the kids that are screaming and it, it was just done perfectly that's what i'm gonna stick with that's a great choice, man. Yeah. And the, the nice thing about like those those movies oh and God. why I enjoy them so much is that like there's a surreal quality because it is in the dream world oh, and man. you can get away with things not looking quote unquote realistic because it's right. kind of like in the style of, of what those movies are. So I think that's an awesome choice. Yeah, the first time I saw that, I, my toes were curling for sure. Oh, I'll put a little yeah. clip in here for our audience because I feel like everyone deserves to at least get an idea of what that looks like. So good choice, man. Yeah. Will, uh, do you have a favorite uh, horror movie effect or kill or, you know, anything in the effects department in the, the world of horror that you love? I think the stuff that used to get me when I was younger 
was um some of the practical effects for like body horror like and actually we'll we'll bring up carpenters the thing because that for me a lot of the transformation that the creature does very quickly and just sort of like I don't know, like some of the weird imagery that it conjures up like it becomes like a spider at one point and i'm not gonna to not to ruin anything you know th for the the sake may if you haven't seen it yet or that you plan to see it since i know it was coming back out in theaters that just some of the like disturbing imagery that it it creates and then uses to attack other people i found to be very disturbing um and so even for, I, I don't know, like there's a lot of CGI these days that doesn't age very well, but going back and watching that, I still feel very, you know, <laughs> I guess not necessarily more than uncomfortable, uh, it, that it is very much like, to me, I can I can suspend disbelief a whole lot more with practical effects than I could ever do with CGI. And so watching some of that and um, some of the specific examples of how people either get injured or attacked that that to me was always very disturbing and kind of in a in a weird tangential way there's a film i think it's phantasm that has like a little spear that flies around and stabs people in the face <laughs> that was another film that i think i saw like a clip of as a child and was like traumatized by so any sort of it, i know you watch it today and some of that just looks really goofy but I don't know, man. Practical effects can go a long way to when you're, especially when you're impressionable and you like, you really get into that sort of like believing into the film. That yeah, that's that's all I've got. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, no. the 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 thing is like, um, like Uncanny Valley, the movie, in a lot of ways, because so much of it is like kind of recognizable as like human or whatever it's imitating. And then there's always that little bit of it that's just off, you know, or sometimes like way off. But like, it, I think it is because it it is largely recognizable, but clearly not human or from this world, and it makes it that much more gross and disturbing. So, great pick. I always get in right, trouble May. about the thing. What's that? <laughs> my my <laughs> co-host uh, over on Slash Radio, Rob, he is like he yells at me all the time because I'm not the biggest <laughs> fan of the thing. And oh. it's just a never-ending argument. But that great points brought up by Will. Agreed 100%. <laughs> hey, I, I fall firmly in the camp of not everything is for everybody, and that's okay. Yeah. You just got you just got to live. You got to be able to live with that. Um, it, that's totally fine, man. Before we move on, and, and we can cut it too, but I'm I'm legitimately curious, like your take, uh, Mikey, about that. Like, what's how do you feel about the thing? Will's trying to get me in trouble now too. Unbelievable. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I, I like the thing. It's a it's a really good movie. It's a movie that everyone has to see. I just feel it's a little overrated. Hmm. Uh, not saying it's bad, just saying it's a little overrated. Effects are great, but again, kind of like what Chris is. If it's not like I. It looked phenomenal, but a head with some spider legs, it's really cool, really creepy. It was done insanely well. But I mean, I could I would rather sit and watch Nightmare on Elm Street movies where I can see stuff like that not done as well a bunch of different times. That, that's all. So my co-host Rob is screaming at his phone and probably thrown it by now, but <laughs> that's how I feel. Everybody. I'm sorry. 
No, you're good. I mean, I, I appreciate the the candor on that because I'm always interested to hear like, especially for people that are like really into horror films, like to get your hot take on that is perfectly fine. So you you will never catch any flack from me about that. You're good. <laughs> there is beef. It's crazy. Yeah, my, tw my Twitter <laughs> notifications are going to be nuts again. Every time I talk about the thing, I get in trouble. <laughs> hey, it's it's all good. I, I think this uh, genre would be a lot less interesting if everyone agreed, which is yeah. why despite how you feel about Halloween ends, I think the fact that there's this much passionate this conversation around it, it is already like cemented it as like, I won't say a classic, but a movie that's going to firmly be rooted in film history, just because people feel so passionately and very different sides of the fence about it. So agreed, agreed hundred percent. Uh, it's kind of like the last, not to get myself in trouble. It's kind of like the last <laughs> Jedi of, uh, of you know, like the Halloween franchise a little bit. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Oh man. Um. All right. So May, what what is your favorite horror movie effect? Well, now kill? I'm afraid mine might be a bit contentious as well. <laughs> oh yeah. Let's just bring the salt, baby. It's a salty episode. Um. I am going to say the unique horror of watching a giant space Roomba suck up a crowd of people in Nope. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Especially the view of the inside of its guts and just like how strange an alien its guts look and the fact that, oh, these people aren't dead. They're, they're going to be hanging out here for a while. <laughs> Yeah, that was awful in the best way possible. And uh, I, yeah, I would agree. The design of that was fucking brilliant. Like, I had never seen anything like that. I loved it. Because it's, it's the unique terror of being eaten alive, but it's like you're eaten alive on a crowded airplane with a baby crying, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for giving me a new nightmare fuel. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what I would want to. Like, <laughs> God like damn it's, it. It's, it's the worst way I can think of to go. <laughs> yeah. I it's pretty bad. Called it a Roomba. That is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. <laughs> 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 Uh. <laughs> um for me i i know this movie's come up a lot on the podcast and i won't say if it's on our list or not um uh, for for the regular uh screen quest but um the mechanical shark in jaws i think is like a modern marvel of like engineering and i know the fucking thing didn't work half the time and that's where i got a lot of the suspense in that movie is because the, the shark didn't work but uh i think that thing is truly impressive uh, especially given the time and um if you have never like watched any of the behind the scenes footage kind of showing how they constructed it and how that i mean that thing had it was on a crane that was all the way like underwater like on the ocean floor and i i think it's just it's incredible and i think it still largely works so a lot of people will say like yeah it looks a little fake and maybe at times it does but i think um given that we're like in 75 um amazing 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 effect works and it still scares the shit out of me today like um i think the sh for me the shark works uh so that's my pick. I will try to pepper in some clips of everything we talked about, by the way, too, just on the, the video episode. And this is your, uh, you know, weekly reminder audience that if you're not watching the video episode, you are missing out on some great uh, visual aids and bonus content. So there you have it. Well, let's uh, let's move on to Scream, uh, our second film of the show today. Uh, a film that celebrates and deconstructs the slasher genre. And like I said, you couldn't have picked a 
better pairing in Halloween and Scream, I think, because um, Wes Craven, I think more so because I just watched Halloween, seems to be like in love with Halloween and celebrate that movie more than like some of his own work. And maybe he didn't want to be accused of like, you know, being a little self uh, congratulating. Um, but uh, yeah, let's talk about Scream. So first things first, we'll do some uh, general impressions again. Mikey, I will pass it back over to you. Uh, tell me a little bit about your history with Scream. And uh, this was your nomination. So why you picked it? Oh, Scream. Uh, I am in my early 30s. So uh, Scream was that movie for me. You know, we're sitting, we're talking, we were just talking about Halloween. We've mentioned Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. Their peak, by the time I got to that prime age from my age group, that peak of those movies, the original slashers, were dying. We were getting stuff like, you know, Freddy's Dead and really bad movies for the most part. And uh, Scream comes out. And it's like, what the hell is this? It's it's it felt like the old stuff. It had Wes Craven's name, uh, and I've always I grew up a, a Freddy fan, so that was you know right off the bat I was like, wow. And and it was real. It was some dude calling your phone at home and like just messing with you and creeping you out. And we were all doing it to our friends at that time. This was pre caller ID. This movie made caller ID prominent in the world. I mean, it, it just, it was the realest thing. And, and as opposed to Halloween, we didn't know who the killer was. We had no idea. So it kind of, it wasn't the first who done it, but it was the most popular and the most well done. Uh, the killer looked awesome. The ghost face mask. I mean, it, it's one of the sleekest looks even today. Uh, it was just a new take. He wasn't grimy and dingy and dirty and bloody. He was clean, dressed in all black, white face, a really cool knife. He was ghost face. And we got that. That I, I think was the last of the Mohegans for the like that original horror, even though it wasn't an 80s. He was. He, and he came out in a time where horror movies weren't very good. It was a breath of fresh air into the genre, for better or worse. I know he did last summer. Uh, you know, it, it was it, it was the birth. It was it was a rebirth of the horror genre at that time where it needed it the most. Yeah, slashers in particular. And my favorite thing about that mask, by the way, um, that costume and mask was before this movie like something you could get for like ten dollars like in the bargain bin at like the halloween store it was super common and it was like a very um prominent um outfit that had like no i have no idea how much it would cost to buy that outfit now but it was very much the bargain bin like oh this is a cheap easy thing to get so taking something like that and making it iconic by putting it in a movie like this and like that now like that costume that like a year ago is like in the bargain bin and just kind of like oh that's the the cheap costume you can buy if you're broke to like oh this is like one of the most iconic things like must have been just the ultimate like mind fuck for uh whoever manufactured that fucking thing and like <laughs> to go like yeah baby <laughs> they're flying <laughs> off the shelf mark up 30 percent 40 percent you know uh, so sorry to digress, but yeah, I, um, I do remember the kind of the, the before and after of that particular outfit and costume. So, yeah. uh, 
yeah well and like i i just i think it's one of those it goes to show you like how you can take something that's like ordinary and um uh what's the word i'm looking for um ordinary and like unremarkable and turn it into something iconic but like in the right circumstances um well what have you seen screen before and uh, either way what, what did you think so this was actually the first time i've seen scream the whole way through because I'd seen, I think I'd either seen bits and pieces of it or I had known about it. But I watched, <laughs> I watched horror movies in like the reverse order. I've watched the parodies of everything. And then I have slowly like gone backwards in evolution to the original. And so I think I watched like scary movie before I ever watched, <laughs> you know, watch this. And so, you know, it's like, I am like three steps removed from the source material, but um. It was funny going back and watching this and finding it to be a lot more, I don't know, I sort of went into it knowing it was going to be a little bit campy, a little bit silly and and kind of poke fun or, you know, be self-aware of itself, uh, of the horror genre, I guess, uh, specifically with all the, you know, the, the commentary about, you know, how to survive a scary movie. Uh, and so... And even that was just in the marketing for the film. You didn't even have to have seen the movie to sort of know that was what they were aiming for. Uh, but I think I was pleasantly surprised that it was to some degree more serious than I expected it to be. And some of it's in some of the terror that it was trying to drive for, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, at the very beginning with Drew Barrymore dealing with this creeper on the phone to suddenly, you know, what's going on at the house. And then just some of the deaths that take place, you know, leading up to the final confrontation that I was I was pleasantly surprised. I, I thought it was just going to be really silly the whole way through. And it actually had like some very like terrifying or just serious moments that I, I was uh, pleased to see happen that I didn't expect. Glad, glad you enjoyed it. And yeah, it, it must be a trippy to go back like backwards from scary movie to, <laughs> to, to, to this. Um, but I appreciate that uh, you did it in that order. It must have been very interesting. Uh, May, uh, what, what did you make of Scream? I saw you, you tweeting a little bit about uh, the opening. Um, yeah. Which is, <laughs> which is iconic. <laughs> uh, but well, it's funny. I I, this is my first time watching it as well. And I actually felt the opposite. Like I was expecting it to take itself more seriously than it did. And I, mean, I was really grateful it didn't because the thing I really hate about a lot of meta media these days is that it's constantly making fun of itself and cracking jokes, but also asking you to care really seriously about things that just don't have any weight to them anymore because the whole thing is a joke. Um, and I thought this kind of struck that balance beautifully. I was really gripped by the opening. I'm glad they just like launched you right into it. There was no preamble or prologue. Um, yeah, I was I was impressed. It was also cool to see. I think this is the youngest I've ever seen Drew Barrymore in a movie. That was cool. Uh, I can't. So no ET then. I was gonna uh, say besides that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit that was Drew Barrymore yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never mind <laughs> not to traumatize uh, Will again <laughs> I know yeah thanks for bringing up some good memories of my childhood again. <laughs> uh, yeah I don't have much to add other than like this was like the movie for like, kids my age like that like felt like it was like the first that was our own you know like mm -hmm. um, I think Mikey you brought up already that 
horror was in a, a bit of a drought at the time. So uh, it was either rent one of the old classics um, or roll the dice on, you know, something new that was probably going to suck. And um, this was like a movie that you watched over and over and over and over again. And I think the thing that we liked about it the most was the co- like the comedy aspects to it, like the humor, I should say, not really comedy, but like some of the more humorous aspects and the lines and, and um, just you know, um, being so playful and acknowledging, uh, all, all the tropes, like in a way it kind of made some of the things that terrified us up to that point, a little less scary going like, Oh yeah, there's kind of a formula, you know, um, as a sixth grader, you don't maybe have like the greatest insight, you know, into stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed this movie. I remember the VHS, um, tape vividly you know the front of it with like the hand over the mouth and everyone kind of in the foreground and I feel like that was aped a lot for like uh urban legend and I know what you did last summer all kind of did that like all the teenage heartthrobs like in a little semicircle on the front and then something behind them you know well let's uh the first topic I have for us to discuss uh with regards to Scream is again kind of going back to our our killer or I should say killers uh, and contrasting that with Michael Myers. So um, Ghostface in particular, and then I want to kind of dive into the fact that we have the big reveal at the end and there actually are killers with motives. But um, Mikey, starting with you, like talk a little bit about Ghostface and then like what you think of uh, it's Billy and Stu, right? I got my, mm-hmm. my notes right. Yeah. Another thing I get a lot of crap for is... Uh... Ghostface is not a killer. He's a costume. Right. And it has, you know, that's fair. But Scream kind of created this lore to where, you know, the first movie we didn't know. So it doesn't really so much apply here. But when you look at him and his, the Ghostface in his entirety, when he's on screen, it's Ghostface. Like he, he is a character without you know it's kind of just written rule where we just ignore the end and it's just you know a reveal but when he's on screen he looks the same he acts the same it's just he's he's a character without being a character even though there's multiple people behind it so i mean that's something that hurts if you're kind of pinning him up against michael myers in a versus kind of thing it hurts Ghostface merit a little bit but you know this is a completely different time. This is the nineties. We kind of talked about the tropes and how they, they uncovered them and they kind of made a game out of them instead of like, they, they made them fun to work with and, and just brought them in front of the audience and put them down in front of you. And I think the whodunit matter of it and it being different people at the end, you know, that was part of that. And I, I think, to set off like if you look at all the combinations of killers or there was a solo one in there too but if you look at all the killers i think billy and Stu were probably the best ones maybe it's because the it's the original but their motive was perfect because that's the thing too when you get to the whodunit there's a new motive every time so you're finding that out too there's so much that goes into it I, i'm gonna nerd out over this movie i'm just gonna let you guys know like this Go for it, it buddy we welcome I, it I feel like this is just kind of like what Chris was saying. Would if if you grew up with this movie and it hit you in that sweet spot of age where you were really starting to appreciate film and and all this stuff, man, it's it sunk its claws into you 
in such a way and just grabbed you. And, you know, that's why Ghostface is on the Mount Rushmore. I don't care what anybody says. I, I think that for me, it was, um, I like both. I like the idea of it. I think it was funny how they like kept implying so hard that it was going to be Billy, like the entire movie. And that it is, I mean, it is Billy, you know, essentially part of it, but um, just the fact that you get like, keep, they just really ham it up in some ways, like to expect that that's going to be the the twist, even though he, he you know, kind of gets cleared a little bit beforehand. Uh, but the motive to me, I thought, you know, it, it was interesting that it had to, to deal um, a little bit with revenge to some extent, you know, with Billy's parents' divorce. Uh, but I don't know to it it's almost like one of the lines that he had too was that does it really matter what the motive is that i'm just you know maybe does there always have to be an explanation about why the killer is doing what they're doing which thinking back about you know with um with michael myers do we ever really need to know it was it, it you know it's sort of like there's sort of little pieces here and there that might imply something or might be relevant but at the end of the day you know he's just doing what he seems to enjoy doing for whatever reason he gets out of it whether or not you really ever know and if it's just you know Stu tags along with him because he just wanted to tag along with him you know it's sort of like uh i don't know this just it, it seemed very much like the the motivation to me didn't really matter that it was just it was that the terror of having somebody who just seemed okay with doing that and thought that they had everything planned out really well and then at the last second, when something doesn't go to plan, there's a hiccup and they don't really have as much control as they think they do. And then suddenly they start fucking everything up and then that's their undoing with it. In some respects, it made me think a little bit about the little about the surprise at the end of What Lies Beneath, where you think, you know, that um, killer in that film thinks that they have pulled off what they were intending to do. And then that one little hiccup at the end, you know, throws their whole plan up and they can't pivot well enough in the moment to try and get through everything and and come out on top. Or it's their own, you know, their own ego that gets in the way and they don't anticipate that their uh, victim, their final victim is going to have enough balls to fight back and kick their ass. So, Well, um, I love your comments about like a failure to pivot because <laughs> I feel like my... Michael Myers, at least, oh, he's adaptable. He goes with the flow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he 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 knows Lori's busy. He goes and goes after her <laughs> friends instead. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Ghostface, you know, he's just he's just not that flexible. <laughs> he's very much in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all jokes aside, I I will give Scream the credit of. Uh, tricking me to the extent I did not see Ghostface being two people coming at all. Um, I did figure out it was Stu fairly early on. As soon as he went to get more beers, came back and didn't say anything about the dead girl hanging in the garage. <laughs> I figured, yeah, that's probably Ghostface. Um, but yeah, Billy actually surprised me at the end. And I do really like that it was different people because it, to me, it just adds to the whole meta aspect of the film because you really see that Ghostface isn't really an alter ego of one man. It's a character played by different people. And those people are also characters <laughs> playing, being played by a person. 
Um, and yeah, it just adds to the kind of head spinning meta quality of the film. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like it's almost like a symbol, right? And you get a little taste of it with the person running down the hallway in the school, right? Like you can already see that like people are spun up by the idea of this, you know, symbol or you know symbolic killer this outfit right has already kind of started to cement itself like in the the culture of uh the fear you know uh, of the town so um yeah i love the idea that that like you know ghostface is not one person it's a character that's really interesting and for uh, at least one of them who's so obsessed with movies too right like mm -hmm. that's pretty uh, it's pretty on the nose and, and wonderful just out um, of curiosity too like it is a separate it's not really Billy or Stu's voice, like there's like a voice actor for Ghostface, right? Isn't it's like a modulator, a the little yeah. thing that they're talking into? Yeah. Uh, Roger okay. Jackson is the voice of Ghostface. Oh, okay. you mean yeah. IRL? Like there's I actually imagine. like there is a spe like a separate guy who voices that character. So in that way, you know, as sort of that extension of it is its own, you know, character versus, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The same I see in every mean. movie. Yeah. The very, very good. I, I, it would be interesting to hear them try and emulate, like if we ever got a movie, God forbid, with anybody else doing it, you know, like that, that goes to kind of what we've all been touching on. Like it, he's his own guy. And they did, mm -hmm. even though he's not, they did so many things to make sure he is, which is weird. Yeah. You don't really see a lot of like difference in like the movement, like of like Ghostface is always kind of more like sleek and fast, you know, like in all those movies, I feel like. He will sprint. He is not a Michael Myers that is going to lumber after you. Like is very much a, a sprint, uh, you know, and and very uh, I don't know, like mobile and sort of agile, which is is cool. Uh, yeah, I, I've always liked um, like the, the the costume of Ghostface, but I think what's like most interesting to me is sort of the the movie obsessed like uh, Billy, and then like boy, you want to talk about queer coding. Like, uh, did anybody else pick up like kind of Billy and Stu? There seemed to be like something maybe a little bit more like. Oh, there. absolutely. As soon as the mask <laughs> drops. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that's that's quite fascinating on its own. Um, I love that you brought up, by the way, that um, kind of the discussion around motive. Uh, my only regret in like kind of my later years watching this is that I wish that like the discussion ended with like, there's always a bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend. Like that would have just been a perfect way to like cut the conversation and just kind of move on from there. Probably would have been frustrating for the audience, but I think that would have been just a nice little touch since it is very metatextual and um it would have been a nice little flipping of of the bird of like yeah it doesn't matter like well why should this movie be any different than the other ones but um but yeah i know i i do like uh that you get so much um uh in the way of like uh what's the word i'm looking for oh gosh like red flags and like um oh i cannot like my brain is shutting down because it's sunday um anyway you get a lot of things that point to billy being the character and you as the audience like are almost like so willing to like or like not have it be him or like wanting it to not be him that you're willing to kind of like dismiss it when he's cleared at the uh the police office um you know with the the phone records and things that uh it's so obvious when you get to the end and you're like oh yeah of course like he's also you know time and again reference all these horror movies and seems to have a very deep encyclopedic knowledge uh about all of them um but yeah i uh I, I like them i think um i haven't seen past scream three but they're by far my favorite kind of pairing 
of all the uh, the killers that are in that original kind of three movies. I think just the most interesting dynamic. And Matthew Lillard's fucking funny as hell. Oh my god, <laughs> mm-hmm. like he kills me every time I watch this. His little expressions and I don't know, like um, I think he's a, a, a scene stealer in most of the scenes that he's in. My mom's gonna be pissed. <laughs> yes. You <laughs> take it easy. I'm getting a little woozy here. <laughs> you cut too deep, man. I'm dying over here. Yeah. So speaking of kind of the metatextual stuff, uh, similar to Halloween, like let's go around the table really quickly and like, what's one of your favorite little nods or like you know spins that this movie does on the slasher genre? So, Mike, we'll start with you. Do you have a favorite thing that? it either alludes to or you know has a tip of the hat to or maybe like does a twist on that is kind of familiar um you know to audiences you know i i mean you could go to was it yeah it was the original with the the guy in the in the hallway uh the custodian he goes in hey fred you know little little stuff like that even even small stuff like that but i i think they the best thing they did was they all the things that scream has done differently and it is a long list, but the best thing they could have done was marry those with the original tropes of horror movies so well. Because, you know, if you go off and do your own thing, sometimes it works, sometimes it don't, but it doesn't. But if you can keep that authenticity to what you're doing and not go and be completely ridiculous, that's where you get something special. And I think that's what we got here with Scream is they they stuck to the roots of the slasher genre so well, but at the same time, they they changed the rules. And uh, kind of like I said earlier, they they took the tropes and everything because we were at the point of in society where we're waiting for the girl to trip and fall. You know, all the tropes that we're, we've gone over today and beyond, we were waiting for it. We pointed at the screen and we made a stupid remark. They pointed at us watching it and they made this stupid remark. So it's like they were in on the joke with us and they put all that crap in a box and they put it in front of the audience and they made a game out of it. Randy, he's listing the rules and the rules are so important throughout the franchise. Even they made a game. They, they made something with them. They faced them and uh, scream Four is a great example because they, they had a long hiatus no screen movies they come back west craven whole crew and the whole beginning of the movie crap chris you haven't seen it please forgive me is just oh, it's over okay. and- uh, the statute of limitations are well past so this is my fault not your fault that's true <laughs> the beginning of the movie is over and over they're literally telling you what modern at that time horror movies were doing wrong and then they would immediately do it well and they did that like three or four times until they got into the movie I mean, that, that's what Scream does. They've always kind of pointed at the audience. And um, I, I'm a slight wrestling fan, used to be when I was younger. But it's kind of like when, you know, the audience knows it's fake, but you still, you kind of bring them into the show to make it okay. And they, they, it was genius. Wes Craven evolved, man. You're talking about, not to talk badly about him, we were talking about John Carpenter earlier the check cleared and you know all this stuff that he just really doesn't give a shit he kind of wants to just chill out and do his thing in life but Wes Craven stood dedicated he made he had another one which is crazy like to have something as big as Nightmare on Elm Street and then screen he had two of the biggest franchises in the genre and he was behind them like I, I feel like he was at the top of the 
top of the chain and all that too. I nerded out. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, again, we we welcome it. This is this is the place for it. Um, no, I think that's that's all very astute, and um, it's probably no surprise that Wes Craven did this and Wes Craven's New Nightmare within two years of each other. Which, uh, if our audience is unfamiliar, New Nightmare is a movie that acknowledges the prior Nightmare on Elm Street like entries as like movies. Like it is like self-aware kind of thing and it's very different some people don't like it some people love it i love it but um he it was clearly on his mind in other words like where the horror genre had come from and um where it was going and and you know how it could maybe be fixed or reinvigorated so i think that's all really good stuff mikey will did you have a favorite little <laughs> tip of the hat or twist on the genre i think for me thinking about both films I always like the jump scares where somebody comes up and like puts their hand on somebody's shoulder, like very quietly ninja style and just scares the shit out of them for no reason. Like it's especially when it's like a cop that does it like in the first one where it's or the sheriff rather and Halloween that just like, you know, he's uh, he's walking up to uh, to Loomis to put his hand on his shoulder. And it's like this guy's already like, you know, that he's already on edge and you're not going to like say something before you walk up to him. He's got a fucking gun too, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, permit or not. The guy is like trigger happy, like he's he's looking out for Michael. So it's like, yeah, so that to me, I always thought was like, I, I like it because, you know, you you want to you want to jump. And I like movies that kind of do the jump scare stuff just because even if it's cheesy, I still enjoy it. But like watching that and then watching Scream and all the little like trying to get your moments that come up during it that I just that I appreciate that. Uh, I love the moments that were like the most overdone just because they were so ridiculous. So for me, it was two points. Um, when I'm liking on his name. Uh, third guy that's friends with Sydney. Um, when he's like sitting on the couch by himself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Ghostface is walking up behind him and he's screaming at the people on the TV (laughs) to look behind them. And you're not watching this first person. You're watching a VCR tape of this that has a 30 second delay. (laughs) Just just so good um and then the second was uh, especially for like a whodunit or murder mystery like inevitably one of the people you suspected of being the murderer is going to get killed and that's how you realize that they're not actually the murderer it's someone else so when billy asks like okay what do i have to do to prove i'm not the murderer and ghostface immediately comes in and stabs him I thought that was that'll work. Beautiful. That'll work. <laughs> that'll do. <laughs> yeah, the couch ones was uh, my pick um, for sure. Because just because I specifically have a memory of like being in a room full of like teenage um, kids, you know, and all of us like are screaming it like at the same time, like as the guy um, in the van and him on the couch, it really broke the fourth wall in a way that like I hadn't probably ever experienced before. We're all shouting the same thing at the same time. Like turn around, turn around. Um, but probably my second is the, uh, the continuation of like the Loomis name with Billy Loomis being named after Dr. Loomis, who was named after Sam Loomis and psycho. I think that was just a really clever way to, um, you know, continue on a little bit of uh, tradition with and show reverence to the things that came before. So good stuff. 
Well, let's let's uh, kind of bring things to uh, you know a close. But one final topic on screen, which is our other final girl of the show, uh, Sydney Prescott, uh, who is in a lot of ways I think uh, similar to Laurie Strode, and in other ways very different. So, um, Mikey, uh, what do you make of Sydney Prescott? I I have said that she is arguably the best final girl, and I, and I know that's not in cement. It's not for me either. But I'm just saying it's arguable. Uh, she is very, she's another character that's grown throughout her franchise, obviously a lot less movies, but well, not a lot less anymore, I guess, that Lori's been into. For, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, um, she starts off, she's younger than we know her now. And uh, this is a new situation with, the, with these killings and this killer and all that stuff. Uh, I feel like Lori was a little more timid than sydney uh and i think sydney grew a little faster than laurie uh she especially at the end of this movie like she was just grab them by the you know what and let's go and she did what she had to do and she was assertive she was powerful uh she the one downside that i will accept and i've, I've heard a little bit is she had a group you know, Lori was kind of just Lori. She had, you know, a couple people here and there, but for the most part, Sydney was surrounded by uh, Gail and Dewey. And I don't think that takes away from her too much um, because Ghostface is so, he does so much more than Michael Myers does. Uh, you know, he's calling you, you don't know where he is and tricky and planning and so much more human and thoughtful. Uh, but I think Sid Sydney Prescott is by far one of the best final girls uh she's a runner-up for the best uh if you put her up against you know uh nancy maybe from nightmare on elm street she only had a couple movies you know like she's really the only contender both resume and action as possibly one of the greatest final girls of all time yeah i think that's totally a valid uh valid nomination for sure she's certainly uh, been around for a long time and um she more has more than her fair share of adversity even in this first film so yeah yeah my co-host rob has thrown his phone again he might have lost it forever right now oh man <laughs> uh tell him that we will not be held liable for any damage to the phone <laughs> yeah, me either rob easy <laughs> uh will did you like uh sydney prescott as a character and what did you think compared to you know say laurie strode I do like Sydney. I think she's a very strong character. I think that she often, like, she doesn't, she keeps her cool really well for most of it, where she's trying to figure out what's going on or how to, you know, escape with whatever the situation is when she's being attacked by Ghostface. So, I don't know, I think she sticks to her guns, you know, no pun intended with how the ending goes, but she's just, uh, I don't know if there's much more I could say to that. I just, I've, I've just watching how she carries herself and how she reacts and how she stays calm. That, that to me, I thought, you know, she, you get somebody who's put in a situation like that and that's, you want to uh, turn the tables and uh, like one of the throwaway lines that she has, or not throwaway, I shouldn't say, one of the lines that she has at the very end of the film is that, you know, this is the traditional horror movie that's not my kind of movie that's not the movie that i'm in you know this my my movie doesn't end this way where the killer is going to come back you know it's we're gonna make sure that he is dead for good and so that to me i thought was was great 
Yeah, um, I like her too. I do think it's hard to compare her to Lori because everything Lori goes through happens in a span of like a couple hours, whereas, uh, you know, everything with Sydney is over the course of a few days. She has um, a bit more time, I think, to process and prepare herself than Lori does. Um, that being said, she's obviously very capable. Um, I feel like my only gripe with her as a character, and I think this is just because of the kind of movie she's in, you don't really get to see or appreciate a lot of the shock and trauma and stuff that she's must be feeling, uh, especially with going to a party, seeing her best friend killed, uh, making up with her boyfriend, sleeping with her boyfriend, then uh, having her boyfriend try to kill her, etc., <laughs> 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 etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, and again, I think that's just because of the comedy aspect to the movie she's in. They can't get too serious into all of that stuff, but it does make her character feel a little flat to me. I think that's that's totally fair. Um, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head that it probably the limitations of how much can you you do within the time constraints and also like tonally, it would make it feel maybe a little disjointed, but uh, I think it's a fair criticism nonetheless, for sure. Um, I think one of the biggest differences between her and Lori, and I think what makes her um, really interesting is that she's already got this albatross of like trauma around her neck from the events that transpired with her mother. Um, and then also like, as you kind of unpack, you know, get a little deeper into the movie, some of the uncertainty that she is uh, clearly feeling about um, potentially sending somebody to their death that like may or may not be responsible for that murder and having to grapple with all the rumors you know like I think it's a really hard scene when she's in the bathroom stall and like the uh, high school girls are talking about her mother and like her you know like that's that's a pretty tough um serious uh scene in a, in a movie that's otherwise like kind of fun but um I, I do think those aspects of her personality make her um maybe a bit more like I want to say like prepared but she's a little more hardened you know she's got a bit of a, a shell I think around her and uh I, I've always kind of interpreted her um capable um actions at the end of the movie and what she kind of does to thwart uh the killers as being a bit of rage that is more clearly like directed than it ever has been she has two people that have confessed to the crime she's able to direct this rage with certainty for the first time to people that she knows deserves it and it's kind of awesome to watch you know and she comes out of that closet with the umbrella um that's a very pissed off and understandably so person who is being able to take out some of that frustration and rage on somebody that again deserves it so love all that you just reminded me that both she and Lori have very unconventional weapons choices that I have to admire. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, a sewing needle and a uh, hanger for Lori. Um, yeah, both very uh, interesting. But hey, you got to make uh, do with what you got to make do with. Um, and, and shout out to uh, to Tatum for for using those beer bottles because that, that's like, it's <laughs> a great scene where she's just like, fucker. Yeah, like, um gives you a little bit of hope in the moment that like yeah maybe she'll make it out of here i felt bad for tatum though man like what a way to go and also what a weird way to go memorable against... kill though that still What's sticks that? out in my brain <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> 
yeah <laughs> don't forget that one yeah the the garage door is like yeah it just seems so weird to me i'm like that wouldn't but that wouldn't and the, i don't know like i feel like that was like the one death that i couldn't suspend disbelief for i was like i just don't feel like and why would you get stuck you wait like you were halfway through <laughs> and then i thought oh it's like in halloween where yeah trying to climb out of the laundry room and i got stuck <laughs> yeah scary movie had a lot of fun with that one (laughs) well very good uh before we bring the podcast uh to a close mikey i did want to hear um if you don't mind um like again uh shameless plug man tell us a little bit about slasher radio and what you do over there oh we talk horror movies Uh, every week we will pick a topic uh on uh, a movie topic and we'll watch it uh my co-host cat and valor and rob humphrey uh they torture me we torture each other uh it, it's weird because no matter what even if we pick a movie where it's like okay everyone's gotta love this one right let's get along with this week let's just do something some team building and everybody will hold hands and sing kumbaya somebody for some reason just always ends up hating it and it's it's always happens uh so there's a lot of controversy over our movie discussions a lot of hot takes uh we have people on the show where sometimes they'll say things as ridiculous as jaws 4 is better than the original jaws oh who said that they're, I'm gonna they're s- not welcome here he's like it's me it's me oh. no it was not me no. uh <laughs> not one of my co-hosts either as much as i'd like to blame one of them for it, it it's just a community and that kind of no, just goes to the horror community uh, it's some even stuff like that which is ungodly and just should not be said out loud ever 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 it's fun and you get i mean stuff like that is you say that on twitter it, it's going to get popular and you're going to get into the debates and all that and that that's kind of what the, um, our show is all about. I think that's kind of what the horror community is all about. So, uh, yeah, we like talking horror movies. Uh, every now and then we'll have a fun guest on, and uh, we like to have a good time with the with the genre. Awesome. And how long have you been doing that for? Oh, man, our five-year anniversary just passed. Yeah, I, I nice. knew from seeing Twitter, but our audience. Congratulations. So I, that's yeah, amazing, that's awesome. man. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. like favorite uh, episodes? Like um, if you were going to tell somebody, you know, in our audience who's unfamiliar, like where to start, is there a particular standout episode you would recommend starting with? Oh man. Um, the show has had various hosts. I've um, had the fortune misfortune. I don't know being there throughout and uh, the show as it is right now on face value with me, Rob and Kat. Uh, I feel like we've our Genesis and nucleus and all that stuff kind of, mesh perfectly and i think the show is at its best right now uh we've gone through different iterations and um uh we had an episode where we talked about a killer hose and some guy a director squirting everybody to death on set uh which was hilarious uh but now i think we kind of we've hit our stride with um uh probably about around episode 170 ish uh 160-ish is when Kat joined and we kind of the three of us joined together so uh there's so many things that stick out we did an episode on rubber which is a god-awful movie uh we fought about that pretty well um we had an interview with d wallace which was one of my favorite moments in life oh that's amazing Um, yeah that's really cool 
yeah um and we i mean we even have stuff like uh uh <laughs> a horror hot takes episode that might have been the most fun that's when we uncovered the jaws versus jaws 4 thing and uh just just the, the most ridiculous things that people believe and we we like to put it out there and talk about it and get everybody involved so yeah stuff like that great i uh i definitely the the hot take sounds like a, a perfect place for me personally to start because i love uh, hot takes and and hearing people uh get super salty about stuff uh. there was salt there was salt <laughs> awesome well it, it has been an absolute pleasure uh having you on mikey where can people find you on social media uh you can find me at mikey's dead on twitter uh you can also follow my show as we were talking about slasher radio at slasher radio on twitter thank you so much for having me guys this was a lot of fun uh it was really cool to hear will and may first watches and i was really paying attention to what you guys had to say about it and uh that was that was a really interesting uh point of view and i enjoyed that very much chris you you were you were uh a lot more familiar and i think our takes aligned really well so it was just fun all around guys i appreciate it this was a blast likewise yeah. thanks for welcome back man. anytime man yeah. yeah our regular podcast is all about learning and growing like it, it is very much we we bill it as a ongoing journey of film discovery so sometimes we've seen the movie sometimes we haven't right. and uh yeah like i i agree it's that's what it's all about man is being exposed to new things but um yeah welcome back anytime man Thanks, and guys. To, thanks. Very oh. welcome. To our regular listeners, of course, you can find us at ScreenQuest Pod on Twitter. We will be posting our next uh, film poll uh, shortly. So remember, you will have the power to vote on at least one of the two films that we'll be discussing on the following week's episode. So uh, give that a, a little bit of, um, you know, your own flavor, whatever uh, floats your boat. Click the vote button. And uh, until next time, we love you. Bye. Bye, Bye guys. <laughs>